This week on the show, we have OpenBSD on the seventh generation ThinkPad X1 Carbon. We also cover how to install FreeBSD on an older MacBook. A kernel portion of in-kernel TLS is what we'll cover a bit more detailed. Uh, we also have boot environments in Dragonfly BSD now, as well as Project Trident updates and VBSDCon schedule details in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 314 in Kernel TLS. Recorded for the 28th of August 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome back to this episode. Uh, glad to have you back again. And we've received a couple of nice feedback from our previous episode where we did the conference uh, gear stuff. So that's nice. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you have something new, then we'll probably do another one in a future episode. But now it's time to head into the headlines, as we say. Uh, OpenBSD on the ThinkPad X1 Carbon 7th generation is our first item. Uh, so this is a post by uh, Joshua Stein over on his uh, website. And it says, another year, another ThinkPad X1 Carbon, this time with Dolby Atmos sound and a smaller battery. Uh, so he's opted for the seventh generation X1 Carbon, uh, which isn't that much different than the fifth generation one he had before. Uh, he's at the non-VPro i5-8265U, 16 gigs of RAM, uh, half terabyte NVMe, the matte non-touch screen uh, with about 300 nits of brightness, uh, he says they do offer a higher resolution 4K version at 500 nits, so better brightness as well. Uh, but reports are that that heavily impacts uh, battery life, and that makes sense. Uh, having a screen that much brighter and that much bigger means that much more load on the batteries. Uh, compared to the 5th gen, uh, you lose the micro SD card slot. I'm, the only time I've used that on my laptop was to write an SD card to put into an embedded device, so... Probably can live without that. Uh, and one millimeter of thickness from the whole laptop. Uh, so compared to the fifth gen, it's 14.9 uh, millimeters versus 15.9. But you also lost six watt hours of battery life as the battery got a little bit smaller as well. But you still have 51 watt hours and with the more efficient CPU, maybe it works out to about the same, maybe a little bit less. You do lose a bit of travel on the keyboard and track point buttons. But uh, Josh says the uh, the feel is still uh, very pleasant, and they haven't gone too far like uh, we saw on some models of the the MacBook Pro and so on. Uh, he says on his older fifth gen machine, he had used a, a vinyl plotter to cut out stickers to cover the webcam, the X1 Carbon logo, uh, the power button LED, and the, some of the ThinkPad branding. Um, and he says the webcam now has a physical Think shutter to cover the lens. And the X1 Carbon branding on the display and the ThinkPad branding on the keyboard deck are now uh, glossy black against a matte black uh, of the casing, and so they don't quite stand out uh, as much. Oh, okay. Eye candy. And there's uh, pictures there if you want. You basically, yeah, the the laptop is all black, and even the logo are basically just a, a raised embossed black shiny, so it doesn't stand out like. Uh, you know, the old rainbow-colored ThinkPad logo and so on. Mm, for people. So much less gaudy. <laughs> yeah. 
notes that the 7th gen has the fancy Dolby Atmos four speaker sound system, which frankly doesn't need any awful hacks to get it working. And it produces a very full and loud sound. Um, there are now two speaker grills at the top of the keyboard deck, in addition to the two on the underside of the laptop. And the new sound system is pretty much the only reason I decided to get another X1 Carbon instead of going uh, with the MateBook X. And they talk, uh, there's a lot more in here about the firmware and other stuff, but importantly, they also have a OpenBSD support log. Ah, yes. So when he first got the machine at the end of July, uh, it panicked on boot. But it turned out that was a, a problem with the ACPI driver in OpenBSD, and that has since been fixed. Uh, with that fixed, then there was then a timing problem where if you did date, sleep one, date, uh, it would take three or four seconds instead of one second. And it showed that the problem that even though uh, the TSC was set to use the high precision event timer, uh, it pointed out that the APEC clock was running at 100 megahertz when it should have been running at 24, apparently. Uh, apparently, by default, the X1 Carbon ships with its BIOS option of using the 8254 timer clock gating uh, enabled. And since OpenBSD uses that for the 8-bit clock calibration, um, this can be fixed by fetching the CPU frequency directly from the CPU instead of timing it using the 8254 chip. Uh, so with that fix, uh, things work better there. Uh, in addition, despite fixing the IHI dev polling issues. The X1 Carbon's touchpad uses GPIO interrupts and requires a new Canon Lake GPIO driver. Uh, so that's still a work in progress. And then finally, uh, realizing that the sound from the speakers was lacking bass on OpenBSD, but sounded fine on Linux, I tweaked to the mixer control application um, to properly hook up the speaker 2 output to the proper DAC and enables the sound with the uh, all of the range of frequencies. Okay, so this is very uh, good for the audio folks. Uh, they also have here a fix from last week for uh, slowly drawing console uh, after you resume uh, so that the console doesn't run slow. But uh, they have a nice little summary table here from about two weeks ago. It says audio works, battery is good, um, the Bluetooth does not currently work, uh, but you can just disable it in the BIOS to save battery. Uh, Ethernet works using the Intel EM driver. The fingerprint sensor does not yet work. Uh, the keyboard backlight works. Hibernation works. SSD is good. Suspend resume is good, including the um, lid action. So just closing the lid can automatically do it. They say Thunderbolt 3 kind of works. If BIOS assistance is enabled in the BIOS, any device attached at boot time will work with OpenBSD and properly detach when unplugged. It will not work again when you plug it back in. So uh, Thunderbolt doesn't have hot plug support, but uh, it does have some support. The touchpad uh, works with the Synaptics I2C, uh, and the trackpoint also works using the standard PMS driver. Uh, USB works. The two USB-C and two USB-A ports work fine uh, using the Lenovo USB-C Ultra Dock, which provides charging USB Ethernet uh, and a connection to the dongle for a wireless mouse uh, over one of the two USB-C ports. Uh, video works with the Intel DRM driver, including uh, DPMS, gamma control, backlight control, um, S3 resume, etc., and HDMI output. And the webcam works with uVideo and can be disabled in the BIOS if you want. And wireless currently does not work. It has a non-removable Intel 9560 
802.11ac wireless chip that is not supported by the IWM driver yet. Uh, so currently he is using a USB Wi-Fi device. Yeah, seems like a decent machine and uh, support is also decent with drivers and peripherals. Uh, someone in the comments section asked, uh, how does it compare to the MateBook X? Uh, it says that the build quality is better. It has more ports. Uh, it has uh, a warranty that the MateBook X does not. And it's hard to compare the screens because the MateBook is 4x3 and glossy and the X1 Carbon is 16x9 and matte. Um, but both are good in their own ways. Okay. Yeah, if someone has a MateBook uh, working with OpenBSD or any other BSD, then... Uh, and that's, I think, what Josh had before as well. There's some more detail about it on the, in the blog. Oh, okay. So that's not a new uh, thing we could cover in a future episode. Okay, but, uh, yeah. Well, I think we did cover it, like, a year ago. Mm. Yeah, when that was fresh. If you need a refresher, the links are in the blog post. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, if you're in the market like me for a new laptop, <coughs> um, then it's definitely a machine that's well supported by OpenBSD. And I'm fairly sure the other BSDs are uh, close to the same support. The not working Wi-Fi is uh, definitely a problem just right now. That's why I'm quite happy with my uh, X270. We continue a little bit with laptops in a different category. Uh, we have a this next item is about how to install FreeBSD on a MacBook 1.1 or 2.1. Yeah, I don't know how that lines up to what version of a MacBook that is. Yeah, and the blog post here on uh, lexploit.com doesn't say, doesn't have a date or something. Um, but uh, the Mac aficionados should be able to uh, translate that properly. This is definitely for an older MacBook, but I don't know how old. Uh, well, there's some indication of how old. Um, it's a MacBook that has a optical drive. <laughs> oh, yes. Then they are old, at least a couple of years. I think they got rid of them like two or three years ago. Uh, there was a huge outcry, but no one <laughs> now is missing those. But yeah, back to the article. Um, so FreeBSD with some additional setup can be installed on a MacBook 1.1 or 2.1. And this article covers how to do so with FreeBSD 10, uh, 11, or 12, and I guess 13 as well, when it comes out. Um, installation. So FreeBSD can be installed as the only OS on your MacBook, if so desired. And what you should have is your macOS 10 install CD. They have a version here, but that's the version when that, that fits that MacBook, 10.4.6. Uh, there are newer versions out by now, but I guess if you have to reinstall or shrink that, thing, then you need that install uh, CD. Uh, the unofficial versions modified for these MacBooks, such as 10.8, also work, they uh, note. Uh, a blank CD or DVD to burn the FreeBSD image to, of course, because you're using the uh, slot in drive. Discs simply work best with these older MacBooks. Uh, and an ISO file of FreeBSD for x86, so not AMD64, x86 it has to be. Um, they write that the AMD 64 ISO does not boot due to the 32-bit EFI on these MacBooks. Yeah, they started early with the EFI, and so that's not uh, possible with AMD 64. But um, you burn the ISO to the blank CD or DVD, and once done, make sure that it's in your MacBook, and then power on or off the MacBook first, of course. Um, then you turn it on and hold down the C key, that's your little C key, uh, until the FreeBSD disk boots. That's uh, basically showing you a little bit more or bringing you into a different menu. 
then once booted, go ahead and select the option one, complete the installer, and at the very end, when prompted, if you would like to exit at the shell, select that. Uh, and once in the shell, execute the command gpart set dash a active ada zero to make that partition active. If you're going to do the install such that it's going to be ZFS in the menu, there is actually an option when partitioning to have it set it active as one of the workarounds for certain types of laptops that didn't like to boot uh, without that. Oh, yes, they added that. So when you're choosing the boot partition type, if you do, I'm guessing you'd need EFI plus active uh, would do this. But again, you can do it whatever way you want and just run this command at the end. So that works fine too. Yeah, and then uh, you can shut down the MacBook, boot it again, and hold down the trackpad button until the CD or DVD ejects so that it's coming out. Uh, once ejected, uh, swap the disk with the macOS 10 installer disk, um, and then power off your MacBook and power it on again, holding the C key again, as before, until the installer boots. And then in the macOS installer, in the menu bar, select Utilities, then Terminal, because you need to do something there, and there you type in bless dash dash device and then slash dev slash disk zero s1. That's the macOS representation of that uh, disk mm -hmm. dash dash set boot and then dash dash legacy. Yeah, so that will set it uh, so that it's trusted as a boot for the operating system and also make it boot uh, without EFI so that you can avoid the 32-bit EFI on the MacBook. And then you, you exit that and shut down your MacBook. And next time you turn it on, it will boot into FreeBSD. Woohoo! Uh, then they have some sections about, oh, the trackpad, because it has some special gestures that you can do. Uh, and the driver for the touchpad has an issue with the high I.O. load and becoming unresponsive on FreeBSD 10 stable, at least, and newer. Uh, this can be fixed by applying a patch to the driver's source code provided by the driver's developer himself, compiling that and installing it on your system. So you need to download uh, the user source, the FreeBSD source tree, and for that specific FreeBSD version that you have, uh, in case user source should be empty, um, they provide the checkout commands with SVN. So this is basically grabbing the 12.0, yeah, the 12.0 release version into user source. And yeah, if you want an earlier version, then you can switch that out, of course. And then you download the ATP patch. ATP stands for Apple Touchpad, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's uh, applied. That should be applied. This patch to user source slash sys slash, slash dev slash USB slash input slash ATP dot patch. And that yeah, that's this is your patch location. Yeah, and then they have a little script for applying it, where it deals with uh, being able to undo it and so uh, backing up the original file first, which you don't really need to do because you're using SVN anyway. Um, backing up the original um, kernel driver module. Uh, and then installing the new one. And again, uh, copying it from modules to boot kernel isn't actually required. Uh, it will search both paths by default. Uh, but yeah, basically switch to the slightly modified version of the driver. Yeah, and then you make some edits to bootloader.conf uh, so that you can load that thing and it understood that it's a different touchpad. Yeah, basically you're enabling the uh, synaptic support, which gives you some of the extra features. And then you make a change to your xorg.conf because that also needs to be detected properly in the input device section. It's all provided in the uh, link in the show notes. And then you add a couple of sysctls that are too too complicated to read out here. Uh, so we refer you to that article. Yeah, they're just setting a bunch of the scrolling speeds and so on. And obviously you can tweak those if you uh, like your mouse to be slightly faster or slower than other people and so on. 
Then they have some uh, information about the video drivers, the speaker headphone output, uh, speaker audio out, as well as enabling the DVD drive if you need that. And that should let you, let you run FreeBSD on your MacBook just fine, on your older MacBook. Okay, back in the news roundup for this week, uh, we found something which has been committed by now, but this is the patch for review. It's the kernel portion of in-kernel TLS. Yeah, um, so this is going to be one of the highlight talks of uh, VBSDCon next week as well. Uh, but if you want a bit of a preview to whet your appetite, uh, yesterday, uh, John Baldwin committed uh, the kernel-side support for in-kernel TLS encryption. So this is a KTLS add support for in-kernel framing and encryption of transport security layer 1.0 to 1.2 data on TCP sockets. So it says KTLS only supports offloading of TLS for transmitted data. Key negotiation uh, must still be performed in user land. Once completed, uh, transmit session keys uh, for a particular connection are provided to the kernel via the new um, TXTLS enable. Uh, socket option. All subsequent data transmitted on the socket is then placed into TLS frames and encrypted using the supplied keys. Um, so the general idea here is when you need to send a lot of data that's going to be encrypted, currently, uh, before KTLS, the way this would work would be um, you know, the request comes into the web server, you set up an SSL session with the client, um, and then the web server is like, okay, you want that file, uh, the web server will say, hey, kernel, could you read that file over there into my user space memory here? And it would do it. And then when that was done, Nginx would be like, hey, kernel, could you take this memory here from my user space and send it over this? Uh, then, sorry. After it read the data off the disk, Nginx would then have to encrypt it into a second buffer uh, and then tell the kernel to send that over uh, the network, which would require copying it uh, into the kernel again. Uh, so you'd end up copying it from the kernel to user land um, when you read it from the disk, and then copying it back from user land into the kernel to send it over the network. And then in user space, you would do the encryption. Um, for not encrypted uh, traffic like this on a web server, uh, since FreeBSD 2 or 4, uh, we've had a syscall called send file, where the web server could just say, hey, I've opened this file, and I have this open connection. Kernel, could you just take you know, blocks from here to here or this whole file and send it to the socket for me. And that way it wouldn't have to copy the data to the web server and then copy it from the web server back to the socket. Um, but when you needed to encrypt it, that wasn't an option. So with this one, um, you basically can do that with the extra step that before you say, hey, kernel, copy all the data from this file into this socket, you have to tell it, here's the encryption key that I've negotiated with the client uh, and then the kernel will take care of breaking it up into TLS frames and sending it for you. And that way, you don't end up copying the data from the kernel into user land, encrypting it, and then copying it back into the kernel to send it over the network, which when you're trying to do a lot of this per second, um, you know, memory bandwidth for that copying can be the, the speed restriction. And so this is one of the ways that Netflix has managed to get such high bandwidth through a single machine by uh, avoiding those two extra copies for no reason. Anyway, so it goes on to say, uh, any data written to a KTLS-enabled socket via the write or uh, AIO write 
uh, syscalls or using send file is assumed to be application data and is encoded in TLS frames with the applicable or sorry with the application data type. Individual records can be sent with a custom type like a handshake message via the send message uh, with the new control message of TLS set record type. Uh, at present, rekeying is not supported through the in kernel framework, um, but uh, eventually it should support rekeying. Uh, KTLS uh, makes use of the recently added unmapped mbuff to store the TLS frames in the socket buffer. Each TLS frame is described by a single um, external pages mbuff. The external pages structure contains the header of the TLS record uh, and trailer for any encrypted records, as well as a reference to the uh, associated TLS session so that it knows what the key is and so on. Uh, KTLS supports uh, two primary methods of encrypting TLS frames, either using software TLS or using IFNet TLS. Uh, software TLS marks the mbuff holding socket data as not ready via the mNotReady flag. Uh, then TLS framing information is added to that unmapped mbuff in the KTLS frame function. The KTLS in queue is then called to schedule that frame uh, for encryption. Uh, in the case of send file IO done, uh, it also calls that KTLS in queue instead of the regular PRU ready. So that leaves the mbuff marked not ready until encryption is complete. Um, for other writes, like using VN send file when pages are available or using a write directly uh, from user space, the uh, PRUS not ready flag is set when invoking PRU send along with invoking that KTLS in queue. Anyway, a, a pool of writer threads in the KTLS kernel process encrypts those TLS frames uh, that get queued via KTLS in queue. Each TLS frame is temporarily mapped using the direct map and passed to a software encryption backend to perform the actual encryption. Um, the KTLS supports uh, pluggable software encryption backends. Internally, Netflix uses a proprietary pure software backend. This commit includes a simple backend for a new uh, KTLS underscore OCF module that uses the kernel's open crypto framework to provide ASGCM encryption of TLS frames using the ASNI um, CPU acceleration. As a result, software TLS is now a bit of a misnomer as it actually makes use of the hardware crypto acceleration, if it's there. Uh, once software encryption has finished, the TLS frames, those mbuffs are marked as ready and uh, the PRU ready function is called. At this point, the encrypted data appears as regular payload in a TCP stack and just gets sent as if it was regular data being sent over a socket. Um, if you use the ifnet TLS, this permits a NIC to offload the TLS encryption and the TCP segmentation. So in this mode, um, a new send tag type, uh, if send tag type TLS, is associated with the interface a socket is routed over and associated with that TLS session. The TLS record for a TLS session using an ifnet TLS are not marked, not ready, but are passed down the stack unencrypted. Um, the IP output send function and IP6 output send functions uh, that apply send tags to outbound IP packets verify that the send tag for the TLS records match the outbound interface. If so, the packet is tagged with the TLS send tag and sent to the NIC, and then the NIC driver um, recognizes that packet 
with the TLS send tag and schedules them for TLS encryption and TCP segmentation in the NIC itself. In addition, a task is scheduled to refresh the TLS send tag on the TLS session. If a new TLS send tag cannot be allocated, the connection is dropped. Um, so this basically offloads all the work from your CPU to your actual NIC. Uh, but if a new TLS send tag is allocated, uh, subsequent packets will be tagged with the correct TLS send tag. Uh, and this latter case has been tested by configuring both ports of a Chelsea T6 NIC in a lag and failing over from one port to the other. Um, as the connection migrated to the new port, a new TLS send tag was allocated for the new port and the connection resumed without being dropped. So they even have support for doing load balancing across uh, or load balancing or failover across um, multiple ports in the same card uh, by using the hardware offload. So that's good. Uh, if net TLS can be enabled and disabled by using the if config flags TX TLS four and six for IPv4 and IPv6. Uh, if net TLS is supported across VLANs and lags as well, uh, LACP with flow ID enabled or LACP with flow ID enabled. I think one of those is meant to say disabled. Yeah. There seems to be a typo in the commit message here. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long message. Uh, applications uh, may request that the current um, kernel TLS mode for a connection via the new TXTLS mode socket option. They can also use this socket option to toggle between software and IFNet TLS modes. In addition, a testing tool is available under tools slash tools slash switch underscore TLS. This is a uh, modeled for, uh, it's based on the TCP drop tool um, and uses a similar syntax. However, instead of dropping the connection, uh, using dash S will force that connection over to use software and dash I will force it over to use IFNet. So you can toggle back and forth between doing it in software and offloading it to the NIC hmm. um, on a per-connection basis. Even. Uh, various sysctls encounters are enabled under the kern.ipc.tls node. The uh, tls.enable node uh, must be set to true in order to enable TLS, and it's off by default. Um, the use of unmapped mbuffs must be enabled via mb-use-external-pages. Um, KTLS is enabled via the K, uh, kern underscore TLS kernel option. So you need to have it compiled in the kernel and enabled with a sysctl. Uh, this patch is the culmination of years of work uh, from several folks, including uh, Scott Long, Randall Stewart for the original design and implementation, Drew Gallatin for several optimizations, including the use of the external pages and the mnotready mechanism for TLS encryption, uh, awaiting software encryption and pluggable software crypto backends, and John Baldwin for modifications to support hardware TLS offload. Oh yeah, that's certainly a lot of work and big effort mm -hmm. with many people. Yeah, and I think it's been going on for three or four or more years. Yeah, and so this is now available. There are a couple of things um, and, and a follow-up uh, comment I saw to that commit message uh, that needs to still be done, but at least this is the first portion of that and it's in the kernel and people can have a look at it. Yeah, oh. um, and I think there will be a patch for Nginx to be able to use it. Um, Excellent. Yeah, so make use of that in kernel TLS to speed up that crypto. Yeah, uh, so you can you could start using it in your own app now, but uh, obviously patches to popular applications to use it uh, hopefully will be coming. Yeah, this is the, the idea. Okay, very nice. 
So I guess we will also, as you mentioned, uh, hear about this at VBSDCon, and there will probably be a video afterwards. Okay, next up is equally exciting because we have, apparently, boot environments now on Dragonfly. So this is over, of course. Uh, this is a GitHub project, and it's called DFB E8, well, DFB EA ADM. You remember the BEA ADM tool that we had on FreeBSD? Uh, except, yeah, but there's only one A in it. Oh, yeah. So it's DFBE ADM. D yeah, so there's the cut. DFBE ADM. Okay, this is a boot environment manager for Hammer 2. And it says that this is uh, a tool inspired by the BADM utility for FreeBSD slash Elomos systems that creates and manages ZFS boot environments. This utility, in contrast, is written from the ground up in C. This should provide better performance, integration, and extensibility than the POSIX shell and AWK script it was inspired by. Um, during the time this project has been worked on, BADM has been superseded by BECTL on FreeBSD. Uh, after hammering, oh, here we go. After hammering out some of the outstanding internal logic issues, I might look at providing a similar interface to the command as BECTL. Uh, so BECTL was designed to have the same interface as BEADM, uh, but is written in C and more importantly, is backed by a library, libbe or libbeectl, I forget which one, um, so that it can be used uh, for appliances and stuff. Yeah, uh, so people can hook into that. And so the outline here is that the general process works as following. You run sudo dfbeadm-c and then 2019-08.01, for example, like a date. Whatever you want to call the snapshot, and it will create a, a new image with that name. Yeah, so this is your boot environment name. Um, and this does the following. DFBADM scans all mounted file systems for Hammer 2 volumes. Mount points for all Hammer 2 mounts are opened. The existing boot environments labels are cleared if found, so that this is uh, pointing to the new one. The PFS label is preserved. Uh, the label given in the command line is added to the end. And the buffer holding all snapshot structures is passed into SnapFS, which loops over the file systems. And if a file system structure has the snap member set to true, a Hammer 2 snapshot is created. The existing fstub is copied to etc fstub.bak, backup. Uh, a new fstub is generated under slash tmp. And once the new fstub is tested, it's installed to etc fstab, the, the real one the system is using. And the to-do here is that handle the update of loader.conf to point to the new boot environment. Yeah, so a bit different than ZFS because ZFS doesn't have to rely on fstab. And uh, a number of years ago, we moved away from having to specify in your loader.conf which boot environment you wanted by instead having that be one of these tags or properties on the file system. Or we actually put it on the pool for ZFS, but that's slightly different. Um, the main advantage of that being that you probably want your loader.conf to be one of the things that you're versioning with boot environments. Yes. Um, and so if you have multiple of them, how does the bootloader decide which one to read? Mm. <laughs> to know which boot environment to load for everything else. What the user wants, yeah. Uh, so, uh, as we uh, said, the usage there is that the DF, DFBE ADM utility will create snapshots of all mounted Hammer 2 file systems with a consistent label. Uh, this is done by adding the string colon dollar label to the end of the current PFS label. It's a variable. Uh, for example, a PFS of NVMe uh, 0S1D at root turns into NVMe 0S1D at root colon 2019 0801. If invoked 
SB DFB EADM dash C twenty eighteen zero eight zero one. Yeah, so basically that's how they name their writable snapshots, which in ZFS are more like clones, and it's quite a bit different. Mm, yeah, that's Hammer's uh, design that's different here. Mm-hmm. But uh, def, def, the idea of a boot environment is not limited to ZFS in this case. You can also run it with Hammer 2. Correct. Very nice. They have a list uh, of limitations there as well, so you might want to read that uh, as well if you're trying that out on Hammer 2. Uh, there's some weird issues with home directories getting their permissions reset to not the right permissions. Ah, okay. So they need to look into that, why that happens. Uh, but seems like it's stable enough to use, or at least uh, give it a shot. And uh, yeah, having different versions of your operating system or your file system, at least, uh, that you can select which one to use is nice to have on Hammer 2 as well. Yep. Uh, next up, we have Project Trident 19.08 is available now. Uh, includes a fix for the legacy boot ISO function so that you can boot uh, on older machines or just boot with the non-EFI mode and the VESA graphics will actually work again. Um, and then they have a package update with 154 new packages, 394 old packages removed, and just shy of 5,000 packages updated. Good to have, always. Um, most of the stuff going away doesn't look that important. Uh, yeah, it's uh, packages go- coming and going, being updated. I think it's mostly just stuff that wouldn't build uh, at the time. Yeah, they... Uh, uh, looks like the port of the old Linux version of um, Enemy Territory, the game, has stopped building for some reason. <laughs> okay, so the gamers are sad. <laughs> okay, well, I guess some people can go without that. Or... or some dependency failed to work or something. but mm-hmm. Or they go back to that and fix that and it will be reintroduced next time. Yes, I'm, I'm guessing, uh, you know, the people in the FreeBSD ports tree keep working on a bunch of this stuff. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, highly, or that's it, it's likely that it's coming back or be fixed. Oh yeah, so yeah, check it out. Uh, try out Trident. They are always looking for feedback and uh, yeah, try it out and see if it helps you being a more desktop-oriented BSD user. Yep, they also have the um, Stable 12 version available if you would like to not be running on their dash current snapshots. Yeah, that's a bit more stability there, but you don't get the latest stuff from upstream um, only after a while. So yeah, depends on what you want, stability or the latest and greatest. Uh, yeah, what else is there? Ah, yes, there's a thing upcoming next week. Alan and I will go to VBSDCon. And we thought we might as well look at the schedule now that it's out. Yes, uh, so thanks to VeriSign for sponsoring and Dan for organizing uh, and the rest of the team, uh, both the organizing team, which I think was uh, Ryan Steinmetz and um, Felder. What's his name? It's, uh, oh, yeah, um, it's on the website. Uh, Mark Felder, yeah. Mark Felder. Uh, and then the program committee, which was Dan, Ryan, Mark, uh, myself, Michael Shirk and Pamela Mosajuk. Um, so, uh, without further ado, we'll get to what it is. Uh, starting Thursday, September 5th, uh, with the social event. So, we'll have a welcome social as everybody arrives for the conference from 6 till 9 um, at the hotel. Uh, everybody to hang out and meet some people uh, and catch up with everybody. And then uh, we'll start 
bright and early on Friday morning at 9 a.m. with our keynote by Paul Vixie, uh, talking about DNS over HTTPS. Uh, so each talk has a little abstract so that people see uh, what's about, what is this about, and whether they are interested in seeing that. Well, the, the keynote's a little bit of a surprise, though. Yeah, of course. it's uh, They shouldn't give it away too much. Yeah. Uh, and then at 10 a.m., uh, basically right after the keynote and a short break, uh, we'll get into John Baldwin talking about in-kernel TLS framing and encryption in FreeBSD. So we the commits we just talked about, uh, but explained better than I can explain them um, by the person who did uh, a bunch of the work. Oh, yeah. Uh, and who actually understands it all, unlike me. <laughs> who can explain it. And so I'm very much looking forward to that one. Uh, although at the same time, in the second room, um, this is really a one-track conference, but we do have a side room uh, for some kind of interesting stuff going on. From 10 till 3 uh, will be uh, a kind of attendee-driven education session uh, run by Brian Callahan learning about OpenBSD through its porting system. That's an interesting way of uh, introducing people to an uh, operating system. Yeah, uh, getting into the operating system. Because it turns out, well, us developers all think about the operating system and all those kind of fiddly bits. Um, <laughs> most users think of their computer from the view of the applications. Yeah. And so... It's an interesting approach to teach people about the operating system by looking at how the application uses the operating system and how how what changes you need to make to an application to make it work across other operating systems. Yeah, and how you can like port an application that you want to use that's not available yet. Uh, and that way get into open uh, BSD in this case um, development. Then uh, back in the main room at 11, uh, Dave Fillard will present Transitioning from FreeNAS to FreeBSD. So this is a talk about how he basically grew from just uh, a FreeNAS user using the web interface and then kind of discovered the command line and using jails and uh, getting more and more into BSD to the point where he actually transitioned to using a regular FreeBSD server uh, with ZFS rather than using FreeNAS and learning how to do all of the uh, components himself uh, and basically how this is one of the avenues we can get new users into FreeBSD is by basically hooking them with the ease of something like FreeNAS, but then constantly teasing them with, you could learn a little bit more and do all this extra stuff <laughs> until we suck them in and turn them into hardcore users or even developers. Oh, yeah. Why not? Uh, then at 1 o'clock, Sean Webb will present about hardened BSD, the state of the hardened union. Uh, at 2 o'clock, uh, Benedict Reuscheling. Oh, that guy again. Uh, we'll present uh, <laughs> replacing an Oracle server with FreeBSD, OpenZFS, and Postgres. Yes, and I have mostly finished the uh, presentation by now. It's just a little bit of uh, adding a couple pictures here and there. So yeah, you mm. should uh, definitely look out for that one. It's, it's new, um, but I think it's interesting in the way that it's more yeah. from the application perspective. I'm not giving away too much here, but um, yeah, it's something where FreeBSD shines and has been used in production for at least a year. In university production, it's it's not like we're making money out of that, but hey, it's it's a use case. Well, you're saving a lot of money by not paying for Oracle. <laughs> oh yeah, that that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then at three o'clock, uh, we have Michael Lucas talking about twenty years in jails, uh, FreeBSD jails then and now, kind of looking at the whole history of how jails have evolved. Uh, and then I think there's a 
dinner on the Saturday night, right? Uh, somewhere around that, yeah. Then Saturday, bright and early at nine in the morning, uh, our second keynote will be Colin Percival presenting 23 years of software side channel attacks. Uh, kind of doing a retrospective looking at the one of the original uh, side channel attacks against uh, Intel hyperthreading, discovered by Colin and presented at a BSD conference uh, 23 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or maybe it wasn't. Maybe his wasn't 23 years ago. But anyway, uh, looking at software side channel attacks over the last 23 years, including um, the newer ones like Spectre, Meltdown, and their follow-ons. Mm-hmm. Oh, and look who's next. Some Alan Jude at 10. Yes. Uh, I'll be doing my explain like I'm five years old, how ZFS caching works. Uh, followed at 11, Michael Dexter will do uh, ZFS performance uh, across six different operating systems. Um, so I think this one is using a bunch of identical machines, but each one running a different operating system that uses ZFS. So that's Solaris, FreeBSD, NetBSD, Illumos, OS X, and Windows, I think. Does it say in the abstract? Uh, the list is? Of, ah, yes, yeah. Yeah, uh, Illumos, FreeBSD, Linux, macOS, NetBSD, and Windows. Mm-hmm. That's a... Uh broad range uh, and comparing how they perform given the same uh, hardware and so on okay interesting so that will be interesting uh, then Connor Be uh, will present about using FreeBSD at work building network and storage infrastructure using PFSense and FreeNAS and then Kurt will present about the care and feeding of OpenBSD porters and finally Aaron Poffenberger will do his Road Warrior Disaster Recovery, how to secure, synchronize, and back up your laptop when you're on the road. Oh, yeah. So there's a lot of interesting talks in there from various aspects, from various use cases. Uh, so a little bit of everything. Uh, and people can still register for the conference and show up. That's certainly interesting. Uh, and say hi to the people. And yes, there will be a... A social event dinner thing on the Saturday from six till nine. Oh, uh, like a closing session? Yeah. Okay. Well, a closing party. Or party, yeah. After everything's said and done, mostly <laughs> we can party a little bit. Yes, and uh, not early registration is still open. Uh, One hundred and twenty-five dollars. Which, if you compare to most conferences of this quality, would be a thousand dollars a ticket or more. Uh, is a damn good deal. So yeah, thanks again for the VBSDCon uh, organizers and uh, sponsors, of course, VeriSign. And yeah, I look forward to it next week and we'll report back how it was. Uh, we have a small Beastie Bit section this time, uh, not because of lack of stuff, but um, yeah. Well, mostly because we're running out of time in this episode. We're already... <laughs> yeah, we're short. <laughs> going to be uh, close to as long as we want the episode to be. Yeah. Uh, so we've got more stuff in the next week's episode. Yeah, don't don't worry. But this one was time sensitive, so I snuck it in anyway. The New York City BSD user group uh, is having their next meeting September 4th uh, at 6.45 at Suspenders, uh, 108 Greenwich Street. And uh, Ivan Ivanov will present his talk about uh, attempting to set up convenient working environments. Um, we often discuss automation topics, but... Uh, no matter how perfect our automation procedure failure errors, um, and you do actually need to log into a box and interactively manually debug it. Uh, so also talk about attempts to set up convenient working environments under different Unixes. 
So yeah, good to see that Nicebug is uh, still active or has been for a number of years. Oh yes, they're very active. Uh, and so we wanted, uh, they emailed in uh, about their next meeting, like they're encouraged to do. Uh, and so we wanted to make sure we got the news out to you guys as soon as possible. Yep. So you you heard it here first, basically. And if you can't make it to uh, VBSDCon, then why don't you go to New York for Nicebug? Okay, now it's time for feedback and questions. Uh, we have three feedback and questions uh, this time, but we might run out of them in the future if you don't send us future uh, feedback and questions. So Yes, a couple of people commented on IRC and so on. If you sent feedback uh, um, more than a couple of weeks ago um, and we've not covered it, please reply and bring it back to the top of our inbox. We might have missed it or something. And yes, just keep sending us more feedback. Uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv is your email address for that. And you can also send us uh, show ideas, topics, uh, something you found, a blog post about BSDs that we missed. So uh, this is your address to send it to. The first one who did that this week is Tom. Uh, he has a couple of questions, so here goes. Hey, Alan and Benedict. I listened to episode 311 today and was sad to hear you don't have any questions anymore. So here I am. Excellent. Tom answered our call. Excellent. Uh, actually, I already sent you a question a couple of months ago with a contact form on your site, but the question never got answered, no answered on air. I searched the website but could not find the email address. Perhaps you can mention it somewhere on the site. Oh, that's probably the, the reason Alan mentioned it got pushed down in our inboxes. Uh, well, apparently there may be something wrong with the contact form on the Jupyter Broadcasting thing as well. So I'll have to follow up on that. Should test that, yeah. Send us a, ourselves a little <laughs> reply. Okay, so sorry for that. Um, anyway, to his question. Uh, he's very uh, new to FreeBSD, installed it only this January, and I'm playing around a bit with Jails. As a network engineer, it makes sense. I look at the network side of Jails, and I notice there are two options. IF underscore bridge and uh, netgraph. The former is quite simple and easy to set up, but the latter is a real pain in the... Uh, do you know of any good resources on getting started with netgraph? Default jails don't actually require either of those. You basically just um, give it access. A, a default jail will have access to the host networking stack, but there's a rule that says it can only use this list of IP addresses and you just have a comma-separated list. Um, and that means that you don't have to do anything extra for the jail to be able to access the network. Now, sometimes if you say only have one usable IP address on the host for, say, your internet access, uh, you may actually do something like uh, make a loopback interface and give IP addresses to the jail from that, and then do NAT or something to get it out. Um, so that's one option. If you do a VNet jail, this gives each jail its own private networking stack, uh, which means it'll have its own interfaces and you can move interfaces into that virtual network. Um, and so in that one, you often have uh, a bridge and what's called an e-pair, which basically two ends of an ethernet cable. Uh, the A end stays in the host and will plug into the bridge and the B end will go as the interface inside the jail. Uh, and then use the bridge to also add the your internet interface to the bridge. And now the interface inside the jail is bridged to the your regular network interface. Um, NetGraph. 
I've not used NetGraph before. Um, there are some stuff in the man pages and so on. I know recently Steve Wills did some complicated stuff. Well, maybe not that complicated. Did a bunch of stuff with NetGraph in order to be able to do um, a NAT setup uh, similar to what the VirtualBox network driver does for Beehive. Uh, so he has a recipe that's now in the man page uh, for NetGraph on how to do a fairly straightforward NAT translation from a beehive without having to you know, set up a whole firewall on the host just using NetGraph. Uh, so that seems really cool. Uh, I know NetGraph has been used for a lot of complicated things uh, and like high performance, uh, high demand production stuff. So both IfBridge and NetGraph are good for production. IfBridge may have some performance limits. I don't know what the limit on like packets per second is, but um, with the IfRidge setup I have, I've not been able to get more than three or four gigabits per second through it. Uh, but for most use cases, that's probably enough. Yeah, that's uh, that already answers the next question, which one performs better in production environments? Uh, yeah, or even what's the advantages? Um, it kind of depends what you want to do. You know, IfRidge is simpler and basically just acts as if you plugged... Uh, basically, if bridge is a switch, uh, and you can plug multiple things into it, and it will look at the MAC addresses and send the packets to the right interfaces. Um, whereas NetGraph is more about translating the data as it goes through, which depending on what you're doing, you know, if you just have a jail and you want to NAT it out to the internet, NetGraph might be a better solution, um, especially the same thing for a VM. Uh, but if you just want it to join your normal network as if it was, uh, you know, just plugged in as a separate box, uh, then IfBridge can be a lot more straightforward. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, but if you're just doing jails, if you don't need anything, then just bind a second IP address to your host machine and give it to the jail, and it will just work without any setup. Uh, but if you're doing something like if you're renting a digital ocean droplet or something and you only have um, one usable internet address, then you'll have to do it slightly different. Yeah, that's basically the distinction. Try out both and see what works best for you, even if one is more complicated to set up or uh, more involved. Yeah, so thank you for that feedback. And uh, see, even if you're new to FreeBSD, you submitted a question, we answered it, and not, we never know what comes out of that, but you might uh, be better off with that solution now that you have a new view about how we... Uh, can do things on FreeBSD networking in jails. Yeah. All right. Uh, next up is Michael uh, with DFB ADM. Ah, this is your episode. Um, good morning, he writes. It's been a long time coming, but I've just sent out a notice that DFB ADM is ready for broader testing, and we covered that uh, in this episode. So this is the Dragonfly BSD announcement uh, on the mailing list. Uh, it's still what I'd consider an early beta, but it served him well throughout development, he writes, and should be useful for other Dragonfly BSD users slash developers using Hammer 2. Uh, yep, that's uh, what people now know about, and I guess you will get a couple more people testing. I guess it was slightly redundant to put this in the feedback, I guess. I think things got reshuffled a bit, and that's how that happened. Uh, but it does demonstrate, if you do something interesting, or even just hear of something interesting do write it into us, and that's how it gets in the show. Don't hide it on the mailing list post that might be forgotten sooner than later. Send it to us, and we'll give it a bit of a wider distribution. 
Thanks, Michael, anyway, for that. And uh, Boston is last this week uh, with uh, more questions because he has sent in more questions previously, uh, remember, but it's good to have follow-up ones. Uh, he writes, Hi, my phone automatically downloaded your last episode and when I was listening to it, I heard crickets. Oh, no questions from listeners? I feel guilty of not fulfilling that segment. Shame on me. Okay. <laughs> Well, I'm in the process of solving two problems. Most of the time, they are on hold. In the background, I need to do other stuff. Okay, so I still haven't done all the research to resolve these problems. So I haven't sent the questions to you in the last resort. That's fine. But now I'm sending them to you to fulfill this segment. And yes, they are all ZFS related. Now his questions. So my friend is a photographer. He has a lot of photos and videos. He has all photos and videos saved on Freenas. To access these videos, he uses several different uh, applications. It depends on the task he needs to do. To speed up the process on previewing all 4K videos, he transcoded them all to 720p. So he previews the 720p, and for editing, he uses 4K. Now here comes the problem. Some apps read the creation date of a video, so they display all videos as they were, made in one day. Actually, they were well, transcoded. Now I need to change creation date of all videos to its correct one. The creation date is important for photos and videos. Um, so there's two main options there. So the answer is likely the touch command, uh, which lets you modify the time. And you can basically set the, the creation time on it, or you can um, skew the time by like, you know, make it a day earlier or a day later or whatever. Um, so as a source for the correct date, you can either basically uh, in the script or whatever you're using to do the transcoding, you will look at the modified time of the original file, uh, possibly with the stat command, uh, and one of its flags to make it output the time that the original file was created, and then use the touch command to apply that to the transcoded file. Uh, or you might be able to use something like FFmpeg's ffprobe command to find the date in the metadata in the video which might actually tell you the date the video was recorded on the camera, not the date it was copied to the NAS in the first place, which might even be more correct. Um, and so, yeah, the stat command and the touch command are probably your answers there, but you might be able to use FFmpeg's ffprobe command to actually get the metadata from inside the video, which might have a more correct date. Or it could be wrong if the camera's date wasn't set correctly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 1st of January 1970, uh, <laughs> something like that. Um, yeah, so this should uh, cover that. And it's not something about the A time not set on the ZFS data set or something. So this is just the access time uh, when last this file was touched or accessed. Um, yeah, so that should uh, solve that problem. And I guess that's pretty much wrapping up this episode. Um, again, if you have anything for us, send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we'll have future episodes and sections we can fill with your content. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Mm -hmm.